We're continuing our study through this great book, Nehemiah chapter 10. Good to see you all here. And, um, you know, I was reading in an article, uh, a pastor, that said at the beginning of every day, all of us have something in common with every other human being on this planet. It's not geography, it isn't economic status or environment or even opportunity. There's one thing that's true of us, of kings and queens, of presidents and princes, and also the poor. That one thing that we have in common is time. And what he means by that is that when you wake up in the morning, you have 24 hours. And, and obviously some people live to different ages. That's not what he means. He's just talking about the fact that when we wake up, God has provided something to everybody in the same amount. Um, there's few things that we can talk about equality on, but the question does not come, do I have enough time to get things done? The real question is this, how can I best invest the time that God's given me? Don't you, haven't you found that in living the Christian life, it's not just about how many hours do I have today, but the real question is, is how can I invest my time for the greatest return possible for God's glory? That's a great way to think through life. Um, it's a really, a, it's a question of putting priorities on things that are important. Uh, I don't think that there is a more important topic in our day than really placing a priority on things that matter. Because we're living in a day and age where people are being pulled in multiple directions, aren't they? Uh, I mean, I could, really, I could really begin to venture off a little bit and begin to talk about the priorities that we, we have in society today. And how many times the things that we put priorities on are really just misplaced priorities. Do you agree with that? I mean, we, I don't really want to go there, but you guys know what I mean. The fact is, is that we as believers, God has invested, he's given us the time as uh, one of our most valuable resources. The fact that he gives you a, a, another day on this planet to live for his glory is, is a tremendous responsibility that he's given you. I was thinking, uh, I had read an article about an industrialist named Dodd. Uh, I don't remember what his first name was, but when he was interviewed, they had somebody ask him this question. They said, in all of your dealings with people, what was the most specific thing, what was the most difficult thing to get him to do? And this is what he said. This was a, a very bright businessman. He said, it really comes down to two things. He said, the most difficult thing in my business is comes down to two things. Number one, he said, first is to think, and second is to do things in the order of their importance. He said, the hardest thing to do is, number one, get people to think, and then second, to do things in order of their importance. That's a... He explained it a little bit further, and he said, it's hard to find people that really think and then act, that are wise, and they think through what needs to be done, and then they act. And he said, the second thing is the main maintenance of proper priorities. I want you to think in your life, how well do you think? Do you think through what you do before you act? 
And then second of all, how good are you at maintaining the things that are important? That's a tough question, isn't it? You know, really living life well really comes down to maintaining priorities, doesn't it? Keeping first things, what? You guys know it first. Putting at the top of your to-do list the things that really matter. And then putting things second that belong second, not first. And uh, when it comes down to living life really well, I think Nehemiah was a person that really understood that. If you look throughout the book as we've studied it, you'll notice that Nehemiah uh, was a fantastic leader, first of all. Nehemiah, he had been the cupbearer, remember that, for the king in Persia. And you remember that God had put it on his heart. There was somebody that came uh, that had told him about what things were like in Jerusalem. What was, the, what was the situation in Jerusalem? Well, the walls were down. Everything was destroyed. The people were without protection from their enemies around them. And you remember what happened with Nehemiah? His heart was broken. And he instantly, as he was broken, began to think and began to pray. God had put a burden on his heart to do what? To go back. God, would you allow me and would you give me grace in the sight of this king that he would allow me to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls that were torn down. He took time over the months. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you look at it, it's about four months he spent in prayer and asking. You remember that? We talked about that. Four months praying and asking God to open up a door, an opportunity. He took time to do what? To think, to pray, to ask God to give him wisdom. And you remember that it didn't happen by accident, but God had allowed an opportunity. One day he came in sad before the king, and the king asked him, Nehemiah, what's going on with you? And Nehemiah in that moment had one of those arrow prayers. He quit, shut up quick, Lord, give me the words to say. And you remember what happened? That he began to disclose to him what was on his heart. His people were living in a city that had no walls. They were unprotected. They were in a dangerous position. And God graciously answered his prayer on the spot. And the king said, not only will I let you go back, but what do you need to get it done? Incredible. And over the course of time, as he would journey there to Jerusalem, he began to plan. You remember, he spent a whole night where he rode around, he surveyed the wall, he looked at it. And what I mean to say is that he was a thinker. He, he thought about what he was going to do. And, and what we love is that uh, as we've studied through this book and as we've looked at it, he took time to live with his vision. He took time to digest what God would have him to do. He wasn't a person, he didn't just come back to Jerusalem and start throwing up brick and mortar. He didn't say, let's just take the stones and let's throw them up and put some mortar around it and it'll work its way out. He took time to analyze, to think, and to pray. Uh, you see that throughout the book, but notice that even in the past few weeks of what we've studied in Nehemiah, what I love is that when you look at it, the people were experiencing a spiritual revival that was taking place. You remember I told you the front end of the book is all about Nehemiah and his leadership, but then when we shifted into those past few chapters, we noticed that a new person comes onto the scene by a, name, a man by the name of Ezra, the scribe. And you remember, he took God's word and he stood up in front of the people and he began to read it to them and the people began, their hearts began to break. Tears were coming down their face so much that, you remember what the priest had to tell him? 
Stop crying. Today's a joyous day. We shouldn't be crying about this. God's doing a work in our city. And uh, then as we looked at last week, you remember the people had just celebrated the festival of booths where they had uh, created these shacks that they remembered how God had brought them out of Egypt. And what took place was this. They began to pray and they began to turn to God and they began to confess their sins and they were looking back at all the things that they should be thankful for. They were focusing on God and prayer. They were looking back on their blessings and they were committing themselves in the present and they were praying that in the future that they would be faithful to the Lord. What a great prayer we looked at last week. I hope that that would challenge you. Man, uh, uh, it's back-to-back messages that were about prayer. I don't think it's an accident. But let's look at this together, and I want you to notice that Nehemiah 9, it was a lengthy prayer, but in that prayer, they came to a conclusion in the very last verse. If you look at verse 38, they revealed a new direction. They revealed that they were going to put some new priorities in place. I love that thought of having priorities. Folks, what I, I love about it is this. They were dedicating themselves to things that were important. And they were choosing that in that day, they were, there were some things that didn't need to be important, that they needed to move into a different priority, to lower it in its priority. And there were certain things that needed to be what? That needed to be raised back up and put in their rightful position. Hey, can I tell you how important that is in your Christian life? Put priority on the things that matter. In our day, that's a constant struggle. We're living in a day where we're being told that you need to just give yourself to whatever it is that satisfies your heart. Spend all that time on Facebook. Spend all that time on social media. Consume all the media that you can. Watch all the TV that your heart desires. But folks, what happens is is that last things become first things. And things that should be first things become last things. And so what happens among these people is that uh, they began to establish a priority. Look at verse 38. This is what happens. And it says, and because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and we write it and our princes and our Levites and our priests seal unto it. Now look at, that is a great verse. I love the fact that it says they, they made a sure covenant. Now it's important for you to understand the difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract is between people, all right? We make contracts between people. A covenant is made between a person and God. And what they decided was is that we're going to today, we're going to make a covenant with God. Now, I love that thought. We are making a promise to God today that this is going to be what's important to us they were going to rally together at such an important juncture in their, in, their, in their country's history. Hey, don't you think it's important to make promises sometimes? To make big sweeping reforms, to make commitments? But folks, commitments are important. Now, what I think is interesting is that in verse 9, they're on their knees. But you, uh, in chapter 9, they're on their knees. In, in chapter 10, they're on their feet. In chapter 9, they're thinking and they're praying and they're praising But you come to chapter 10 and they're writing and making a commitment, a covenant, a document, a constitution, a plan for living. 
hey, you know, it's a great idea to make a plan for how you're going to live. You know, you know the saying that a lot of people fail because they plan to fail. There is some wisdom in writing down things that are important. There's wisdom in committing yourself to saying, I'm going to focus on this. This is what I'm committing myself to. And it gives yourself direction and it gives yourself focus because it's so easy to get those things out of whack. But notice what they do. They, they set this new priority. They're, they're setting a course of action to get where they want to go. And, and, and I always had somebody that told me this, and it's always been helpful. Start with where it is that you want to go, and then work your way backwards. Where is it that you want to be at the end of 2020? And then begin to set plans and priorities in place that will get you to where you want to be. And uh, I find that that's exactly what the people did. Let's look at this together. The document of promise. What was this document? Look at what he says in verse 38. And because of all of this, we made a sure covenant and write it, and our princes and Levites and priests seal unto it. It was an agreement that they signed. They put their name down on a paper that was written specifically to who? To God. That's why it was a covenant. They were agreeing, they had been praying about it, and they decided that what they wanted to do was so important that they needed to put it on paper, and they sealed it. Well, your question would be this, well, what did the document look like? Look at verse 29. If you scan down, it says, and they clave to their brethren and their nobles and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all of the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. It's interesting because notice that it says that they entered into a what? A curse. That's unusual, right? This word curse is a very interesting word. It means that uh, it was an oath that they made before God. This wasn't just something off the cuff, uh, uh, an off the cuff commitment that they were making. They were saying, hey, before God, may God curse us if we don't do exactly what we say we're going to do. That word curse, actually, if you look at that word, uh, it has the word El at the end of it, meaning that God's involved. You know the word Elohim? Okay. The idea behind this word curse is that may God curse me if I don't accomplish everything that I said I would do. Big deal or small deal? <laughs> Folks, huge deal. May God deal with this. A lot of times, even in the Old Testament, they would use animals that they would slaughter when they made this kind of promise. And why would they slaughter an animal when they did that? Well, it was like, may God do this to me if I don't keep exactly what I said I would do before God. That was a huge commitment to make. Uh, I find that... A very interesting thing because what they're saying is, God, we're serious about this, this commitment that we're making to you. We don't want to do this lightly. We don't want to commit to doing these things and then go back on what we said. Have you ever noticed, known people to do that? Uh, you, you know, like every January we do that, right? Uh, that's why these uh, health centers, what do they do? They, they, they lower their prices on their membership. I don't know if you know that, but they know that what? 
like eight out of 10 aren't going to come back. And they just bought a year membership. They build their whole business off of it. That's why suckers like me, and I'm joking. All right. And so the, the point is, is this, folks, is that they, when they're making this commitment, they're saying, we want this to be so strong that we know that it's so serious that we would never go back on it. Now, that's powerful. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, even this word, sometimes it, it would have the idea of to do by seven. And, and what it means is, is that uh, in the Old Testament, there was a time when they would make commitments. You know Hebrews didn't really make contracts. Hebrews didn't sign documents to make promises uh, in the sense of when they were going to do a contract with somebody else. They didn't sign contracts and do that. What they would do is they would make promises, commitments, oaths to each other. And uh, this idea is this, is that a lot of times they would give a gift of seven things that they would pronounce their promise. And, and when they, had, uh, for instance, let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 21, Abram makes a promise to King Abimelech. And what he does is this. He takes seven ewe lambs and he gives it to the king. And what he meant by that, by giving him those seven animals, was this. As long as you have these animals, and, and I promise you that I would keep this commitment, then it will forever be a reminder of the promise that I made to you today. As long as you see the lambs alive, you always be reminded of the fact Abram will keep his promise before you. You're like, well, what were the seven things that they did here? I don't, I don't see anything, but let me say this. The, the, the point is this, their commitment was so important that they're making an oath before God. May God curse us. May we be killed if we don't keep our commitment before you today. Very, very powerful thing for them to do. When they made a promise, it was incredibly serious. Hey, folks, when we make promises to God, do you think God takes it serious? As a matter of fact, you come into the New Testament and the scripture tells us to do what? Let your yes be what? Let it be yes. Let your no be what? No. When you tell somebody you're going to do it, do it. If you're not going to do it, don't promise to it. Matter of fact, you go into the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I wanted to bring this up because I think we sometimes in our day, we take commitment too lightly. Do you all agree with what I just said? People make all kinds of promises, especially in D.C. But... Um, the, the fact is, is that people make promises and they don't keep them. Now notice what is said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. He's talking about going to the temple. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Keep going. Be not rash with your mouth. What does he mean? Uh, don't be quick to make promises. Don't be quick to say stuff just off the cuff. And let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let your words be what? Be few. Don't be quick to give any promises. Don't be the saying that I'm going to do this. I'm going to live for you forever. And you go off in all this stuff. Okay, and then what happens is this. In verse 4, he says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. What does he mean? When you tell God you're going to do something, what? Do it. 
Do you think that uh, the people of Nehemiah's day understood what they were entering into? I think they did. They're making a covenant. They're writing it on paper. Why? Why on paper? They would always have a record of the commitment that they made. And not only that, but they had their names on it. Big deal. It's a really big deal. Uh, I, I think of promises that we make all the time. People make promises at, uh, in weddings that they're going to be faithful to their spouse, that they're going to keep their vows. I think of people that make commitments about the fact that, uh, that they give their life to the Lord and, and, and they're going to get their life on track and they promise to God they're going to do something. Listen, when you make a promise, you need to keep it. God takes it seriously. But Nehemiah 10 isn't just an empty saying. Their words aren't hollow. Folks, I love the fact that there was some commitment behind the words that they were speaking. I want you to notice who signed it. Who signed it? Well, each person, we know that when you look at their names, if you do a background check, you can, you can basically look at them and you can see that these were real people. There was 84 names on the document. I like that. Because it was a group of people coming together and what were they doing? We're making an agreement as a group of people, this is what we're going to do. It creates a, a positive peer pressure amongst all of them that, hey, we're going to maintain this together. Well, you have Nehemiah's name as the very first one. I love that. Why? Yeah, he was the governor. And listen, you can't tell people to do something that you yourself aren't willing to do. Nehemiah says, hey, I'm not going to expect you guys to do the same commitment if I'm not willing to do it. And so Nehemiah, great leadership principle, right? If you want to lead people, then lead them by what? Example. He put his name first on the list. And then the people, you have the name of priests, you have uh, Levites, 17 of them. You have the names of the leaders and the heads of houses that write their names down. And there were certain things that were true of all of them. I want you to notice what this says in verse 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. So the people that signed the document were two different, uh, they had two requirements. First of all, they had to be a people that had separated themselves from the people of the land. What did that mean? Yeah, they were set apart. And it meant this. Back when Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem, you know what had happened? There were people, Jewish people, that had married themselves off to pagans, all right? People that didn't believe in God. Nehemiah comes along, and what he basically does is he calls the people to do what? Divorce yourself from them. You're like, Ryan, you mean that he would tell them that they were to divorce each other? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. You're like, well, why in the world would he do that? Well, it was against what God had told him to do in the be to begin with. Obedience is painful. And he says, uh, first of all, the ones that are going to sign this document are the ones that they mean business with God. So much so they're willing to do the hard thing. That would have been difficult. And they're going to divorce themselves from the people of the land. Why? Well, that was the thing that got him in trouble to begin with. That was the whole reason uh, they, they had intermarried with pagans and they began to forget God and they've turned their back on God. And, and what comes along from here in this passage is, first of all, the ones that signed it were the ones that met business and they said, we're going to separate ourselves from the pagans. 
had nothing to do with being married with somebody that was uh, of a different nationality. It had to do with their religion, the fact that they were marrying somebody that didn't believe in Yahweh. Now, the second thing was that it says everyone that had knowledge and understanding. It means that people that understood the commitment they were making. They obviously weren't going to have little kids come along and sign their names to a document that they didn't know what they were signing. Well, you were like, well, it says in the passage that, that it was their sons and their daughters and other people. If you notice down in the passage further, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. Well, these are probably folks that are, are around 20 years and under. Um, there, there's, there's, they were old enough to understand what they were signing. That's what I mean. Well, what we have here is this. They're coming together, writing their name on a document saying, hey, we understand what's important. We mean business with God. We're going to separate ourselves from the pagans. And not only that, but we're going to understand exactly what we're doing when we put our name on it. Wow. Well, here's the next question. You're like, Ryan, why is it important? Why does it even matter? You, You seem like you're making a big deal out of nothing. Folks, listen, they were driving a stake in the ground, and they're saying, this is our rallying point. We're going to come together around these things. It was a verbal monument it, it was this, uh, that said that, in effect, this is our promise to you, God. This is our constitution. We don't care what other people are doing. This is what we are going to commit ourselves to. We're going to be different. We're going to live by this. Our philosophy won't be like those outside the wall. This is something that uh, we want to carry out before you. Can I, I mean, I absolutely think that is fantastic. You know, it reminds me of this summer, my family, we went on a trip out to Portland and to Seattle. I don't know why I ended up going the month I went. I went out there and we're in Portland and it's, it's Gay Pride Month, okay? And I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world is going on in Portland, Oregon? And in Portland, I, what, what broke my heart was this. I'm driving around through the city, and there's churches that have the rainbow flags hanging from them. And I'm sitting here thinking, what is going on in Portland, Oregon? And, and, and I'm sitting here thinking, We have allowed the world to dictate what we're like, so much so that we lose our voice in a world that's lost. We get to the point where we have conformed to be like the world that we're in, and when you conform, folks, you've lost your message, you've lost everything you have to offer this world. He has called us to be in the world but not to be of the world. It's like a boat that has holes in it. When the world gets inside of, uh, and the water begins to leak through the boat, you know what happens? It sinks. And I'm convinced more so now than ever, the church is like a boat with holes in it. And the world is filling it up and we've lost what makes us distinct. Can I tell you what Nehemiah did? He drove the stake in the ground and he said, we're not going further. From here on out, we're gonna live like people within the walls. And we're not going to act like people outside the walls. Folks, that's what the church needs to become today. A people of conviction, a people of commitment. We've lost that. We've lost it, folks. 
We need to regain it. And I don't mean that in an ugly, judgmental sense. I mean it in the sense of that we need to be what, like what these people were. They were going to commit themselves to the Lord, to be his people, to be distinct in a, in a place that was very different than them. Okay? And, that, and I love that. Now let's look at the promises of the document. The promises. Let's look at what it says generally. Look at verse 29, the second part of it. And it says, and they claved to their brethren and their nobles and entered into a curse and into an oath. And now notice that there's three things they commit themselves to, and all of these are great. First of all, they entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law. Number one, they were committing themselves to walk in God's law. What, what do you, why does he refer to it as walk in God's law? Because it's a daily thing. It's one step at a time one step after another, that we are going to be a people of God's book. We're going to walk in his word daily. Love that thought. Second, they said this, to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God. So the second thing was to observe. We're going to be a people that know the book. We're going to be a people that know what God's word has to say. We're going to observe it. We're going to look at it. And notice that the third thing was what? We're not only going to be a people that are walking in God's word and observing it and being knowledgeable and understanding about it, but we're also going to do what God's word says we should do. That's obedience. What a powerful commitment. Can you imagine being a part of a place where the people are committed to walking in God's word we're going to know God's word, and we're going to do it. Folks, that's what church should be like. That's Christian living. And so what happens from this is that these people were making a commitment. We're living in a time, uh, and, and they're making this, uh, this understanding amongst themselves that this is what we're going to do regardless of what other people do. They were saying, listen, we're not going to conform to the people around us. We're going to be a people of the book. You know, I was reading a, a study about college students. You're like, why would you read that? I don't know. And so um, uh, it was, it was a, a, an experiment that they had put on to see how they would conform to peer pressure. So what they decided to do is that they were going to bring in 10 students at a time into a classroom, and they would have an A, B, and C line. They would have these lines of varying lengths, and the only thing that they were required to do was to vote on the longest line. Like, that doesn't sound very difficult. Okay, well, this is what they did. This is the twist. So when they brought them in, the 10 students at a time, they would actually, they had told nine of the 10 students to vote for the second longest line. And what they wanted to see is that would that one student that was in the classroom, would they change their answer when they saw that everybody raised their hand for the second longest line? They went through the experiment. You know what they found? 75% sided with the majority. Why? Out of fear of being by themselves and different and set apart. Can I tell you that that's the day and age that we live in? We're so convinced that we have to fall in with the tide of public opinion and that we have to blend in Folks, God never called us to blend in. He called us to be distinct and to be different, to be a people that have been changed by God's grace. And folks, that's what, 
<laughs> the people were making a decision. We're going to commit, and we're going to be different from everybody else, but we're making this distinction. We're going to be a people of God's word. We're going to be a people that are going to, we're going to walk in it. We're going to observe it. We're going to do it. And we know everybody's not going to do that, but that's okay. That's going to be what, what's going to set us apart. Hey, folks, that's a great way to live. Don't be afraid of standing out. Stand out. We need more of it. Especially in the secular world where a lot of you work. Be different. You don't have to be like everybody else. Now let's look at specifically what was going on. Verses 30 through 39. And we got to do this quick. So be ready. Got your seatbelt on? All right. Now, there were three areas that they decided that they wouldn't conform in. Three areas they would not conform in. Number one, the home. We will not be like the other nations when it comes to our home. I mean, that, don't tell me God's word is not up to date. That is timely. Look at what he says in verse 30. And that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. What were they saying? From here on out, when we signed this document, we're saying this. Our children, our sons, our daughters will not marry people that uh, are not of our faith. They were drawing a line around their house and said, there's no compromise coming within this circle. Uh, they're basically saying, hey, we're, we're not going to allow our children to be taken over by the culture that's around us. I, that is, that's so good. Now you're like, well, Ryan, why would they do that? Well, if you go back to about Judges chapter 3, you'll find that what had happened was that Moses had already led the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, and they went into the wilderness. Then there was a guy by the name of Joshua. Remember Joshua? He led them into the promised land, and they began to get victory after victory after victory. But you remember what Moses told him before he died? Moses came to him, and he, and he said, now, he's on his deathbed when he said it. And he said, I want you guys to listen to me. You guys are going to go in, and you're going to go to cities that you didn't build. You're going to have wells that you never dug. You're going to have gardens that you never planted. You're going to have trees that are going to bear fruit, and you're going to eat of it, but you didn't plant those trees. And he said, now listen to my words. This is my warning for you. You need to go in and you need to take care of business and wipe out the people of the land. Because if you don't, you're going to end up marrying them and you're going to end up conforming and you're going to become just like them and it's going to burn you. What happened? It burned them. Exactly what he said, word for word. He said, and as a matter of fact, let's look at this passage really quick. Judges chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. I'm going to read this quickly, okay? All right, this is what it says. He says, Namely five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in the Mount Lebanon from Mount Belhermon unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them, meaning that uh, it was going to be a test for them while they lived there. To know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And look at verse 6, key verse. He says, and they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to be their sons, and they served their gods. And so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God. And serve Balaam and the groves. You know what happened? 
They became like the people around them. They failed to be a people of the book. They lost their direction. They lost their compass. Hey, folks, can I tell you that making this commitment in Nehemiah's day that they were saying, you know what, we're picking the house and we're putting up a barrier around it and this is not going to be an area we're going to compromise on. You know why? They needed to learn from their history not to repeat the mistakes that had been made before. That's so powerful for us. Folks, uh, can I tell you that in in any nation where truth is being compromised, you know where it first starts off? The house. When morals begin to break down, when the culture begins to get dark, people no longer believe in God. People no longer live by the book. People no longer want to live for the Lord. You know where it starts? It starts in the home. And can I tell you that when you look at our culture around us, it's already begun. Look at the breakdown of marriages. Look at how many kids live in broken homes. Can I tell you that this was not a small commitment? Folks, we as a a church, we need to be praying for our families. God, would you protect our marriages? God, would you put a hedge of protection around these marriages and the families and their children? Because folks, if we don't do that, we're in bad shape. The, The fabric of society begins where? The home, the home, that's why I love this commitment. Nehemiah 10 is so significant because they said, you know what, if we're going to be a strong nation, we need to be different than the people around us. Where? In the home. Now notice the second place, in society. Look at verse 31. And the people of the land bring where, and, and if the people of the land bring where or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy of it of them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, that we would leave the seventh year the exaction of every debt. Now, what were they committing to? They were saying that when people outside of our city walls, when they come over the, over the hills and they begin to come into Jerusalem, to sell their items in our city, and they try to do it on the Sabbath day, what are we going to do? We're not going to buy anything on that day. You're like, what, is, what does that mean? The application doesn't mean don't work on Sundays. That's not what it's saying. The application means, uh, the point is, is that don't lose what makes you distinct. When you work, work with integrity. Where, where you are in the workplace, see, they were deciding as, as a people that, listen, when they were going to bring in their business on Sundays, on, 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 not on Sundays, but Sabbath on Saturday, that what they meant was is that we're not going to buy and sell on that day. That's the day that's been set aside for the Lord. And, and, and though that's different from people around us, we're going to maintain it. And we're going to do it that way because it's what makes us distinct. It makes us different in the, around the people we live around. Hey, folks, in your business, do you work with integrity? Uh, do, you li- uh, do, you, uh, do you do your work as to the Lord in a way to bring him glory? When you're supposed to be there, are you there? Folks, God wants us to be distinct in our character. And God's saying, hey, you guys put aside that, and I want you to do what would be honoring to me. Now, notice the last thing in the place of worship. This is the last thing, and we'll be done, the place of worship. Nine times in this verses, it references the house of God. 
Now notice what he says in verse 32. Also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Okay, now when you look through the passage, and I'm going to try to summarize this really quickly. All right, but they decided that they were going to have charges to make sure that the house of God was taken care of. That was their place of worship. And so what they were going to do is they were going to place a priority on the things of God and making sure the house of God was in order. So what they decided to do, verse 33, they gave it for showbread. And verse 34, they cast lots for the supply of wood for the Levites. Verse 35, they gave the first fruits of the ground to the house of God. Now look down at verse 39. And it says, and we will not forsake, what? The house of God. They were making a commitment that, hey, our place of worship is going to be a place that we're going to be committed to. And these days, we're not going to be like those around us. Now, I don't want to misconstrue this passage, okay? Because there's times where you could take this verse and us being a church, it would be very easy for us to misuse what this is saying. The temple was the place where God's presence resided, right? When they went there, they went there to worship him. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that God's presence no longer resides in the temple. Where does it reside? In you. You are now God's temple. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so uh, what does that mean? Well, that means that... Uh, what should make us distinct? If we're going to try to draw application to this, it means that we need to place a priority on our inner being, on who we are, not just what we look like, not just appearances, but our inner being that we're taking care and we're possessing our temple in a way that brings God, that brings God glory, right? And folks, this is what made the people distinct. Uh, folks, and, and here's the thing, they're, they're, they're committing themselves to three areas. What's going to make us distinct in the way that we live is, listen, we're going to start at the house, and then we're going to move to how we are in society, and then we're going to move to the place of worship. Folks, they drove the stake in the ground, and, and what I love about it is this. You talk about a turnaround that happened in Jerusalem. You don't think God's going to take a commitment like that and bless it when the people say, we want to be a people of the book. We want to obey what your word says. We want to follow it in every way. We want to be a people that are going to obey it, that we're going to know it, that we're going to do it. And not only that, but we're going to be distinct from other people. We're not going to be like them any longer. We've driven a stake in the ground. We're making a commitment. Not only are we making a commitment, we're writing our names on it. May we be cursed if we don't do this. Wow, you think they took their spiritual life uh, serious? wish that we as believers would take that spiritual life that serious. Now, let's look at the conclusions and we're done. First of all, serious thought precedes any significant change. Folks, you don't just change overnight by just saying, ah, we'll just see what happens. You have to plan for it. You have to think about it. You have to, you have to write it down. You have to put time and energy. You don't come to somebody and say, how did you lose 20 pounds? Oh, it just happened. No, they, they committed themselves to a plan unless they had liposuction. You guys are thinking through things. All right, and so here's the thing, is that nobody, it doesn't just happen, okay? People formulate a plan, they think through it. Any significant change, it starts with serious thought about it. What can I do that would be different to change the outcome? The second thing, 
Written plans confirm right priorities. Hey, if you want to have good priorities in your life, what should you do? Write it down. Hey, make a commitment to it. If you don't write it down, you know what happens? You forget about it in a day or two. Put it down. I had somebody teach me this, and, and I know it sounds kind of weird. Can you all let me be weird for a second? Somebody told me once, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? I'm like, okay. So you think about what you would want people to say about you. Well, I would hope that if I pass away that people would think of me like this, this, this. And you know what I began to do is that you begin to formulate those priorities because those are the things that matter. And because it matters at that point, if, if folks, if you're thinking about death in the sense of, hey, what's going to really matter at that point? Hey, that's something to build your life around. It's not going to matter how many cars I had. I, I, that's not any priority list that I got. Folks, that's a great, and, and, and it's been helpful to formulate a plan. Write it down. Last one is this, a loss of distinction and conformity to the world go hand in hand. When you stop being distinct, you have nothing to offer the world. Folks, what I love about Nehemiah, they drove the stake in the ground and they said, this is who we are regardless of what other people are like. We're going to be your people. I like that. Let's pray. As we have the uh, ushers come forward for this evening's offering.